If you guys can turn to page four in your bulletins, we're going to look at the, the preaching text. There's actually two, so I'll read both of them for you. First from Ephesians 5. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the, of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Matthew 19. And the Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is the word of God. Um, Can we lower the volume slightly? All right, so uh, we are now um, in part two of our marriage series, right? And uh, just to recap what we talked about the last time, right? We looked at Ephesians 5, and actually we focused on a single verse, right? Verse 32. Paul has just been talking about marriage and, you know, describing marriage. And then in verse 32, he says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And uh, our immediate instinct is to say, Paul, wait a minute. I thought you were talking about marriage. So which is it, right? Are you talking about marriage or are you talking about Christ and the church? And the answer is both. Paul is talking about both. And that's the key to understanding Ephesians 5, right? That marriage and the gospel are irreducibly intertwined. They're interconnected. So that the more you understand about marriage, the more deeply you understand the gospel. The more deeply you understand the gospel, the more you can live out your marriage and know what marriage is really supposed to be, right? They mutually inform each other. That's the key to understanding the gospel, and that's the key to understanding marriage, so that we can express the gospel in terms of marriage, that it's the marriage of Christ and the church. And we can express marriage as really living out the gospel in your married life, right? It's gospel reenactment. And so that's my you know, working thesis for this whole marriage series, right? That marriage is gospel reenactment. And so through the next several messages, as I'm talking about marriage, as I'm describing marriage, the whole time I want you to be thinking in the back of your mind, Pastor Michael is really talking about the gospel, okay? 
The gospel and marriage are so interconnected. All right, so today we're going to tackle this uh, subject of marriage as promise. And uh, what the Bible shows us is that the foundation of marriage is a promise. Or to use a biblical term, it's a covenant. And it is not, as the world tells us, uh, the feelings of romantic love. Now, where do we see this? Well, let's look at Matthew uh, chapter 19. Uh, The Pharisees come up to Jesus and they ask him about divorce and they say, Jesus, is it lawful uh, to get a divorce for any reason, for any cause? And we tend to think of the Pharisees as these kind of stern traditionalists, right? Um, But actually, on the subject of marriage, they have a very loose, maybe we could even say a very liberal view. And we actually have documents from that period where the Pharisees say that if your wife in any way displeases you, Right? If you no longer like the way she looks. They said, if, if she cooks you a bad meal, then all you had to do was write on a piece of paper, we're divorced, hand it to her, show her out the door, and you're done with her. Right? That's what they believed. And Jesus, in response, says, you don't understand what marriage is about. You don't understand the original intention of marriage. And he takes the Pharisees back to Genesis 2.24. And Genesis 2.24 is the key verse. It's so important. We're gonna, there's no way we can unpack it today. So it's going to be sort of, we're going to look at it in the future. But this is what Genesis 2.24 says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There's so much there, but let's just focus on a single expression, a single word, which is to hold fast, right? And Jesus uses a, a word there, kolao, uh, right, which is translated hold fast. And what does kolao mean? It means to cling to, it means to stick to, it means to bind yourself to somebody else. And the kind of the image that you should have is of a man holding on to his wife and not letting go. Now, what does this tell us? What, what, what does this mean? Well, on one level, to hold fast is a metaphor, is a sexual metaphor, okay? Um, And I know, you know, for some of you guys, this has piqued your interest. You're like, ooh, we're going to talk about sex. Well, um, marriage and sex, okay, very important, and the Bible has a lot to say. I don't want to disappoint you guys too much, but today, too much to talk about. So we're going to push it off to another sermon very, very soon, okay? Maybe that'll encourage you with bated breath to wait and hold on, okay? But let's go, but but we're going to talk about something else, but let's go deeper, right? Hold fast on one level is a sexual metaphor, but on a deeper level, okay, it means a commitment, a promise of commitment, okay? It means a promise of commitment. And um, what's really interesting is that word hold fast is is found about a a dozen different times in the Old Testament. And every single time in the Old Testament, other than Genesis 2.24, it's describing the relationship of Israel and God, of their covenant. And what it means in that context is that Israel was to hold fast to God, to, to promise to love, to be faithful, to hold on, no matter what, right? Now... What's really interesting is that the only place where it doesn't describe the covenant of Israel with God is Genesis 2.24, when it talks about marriage, right? And um, Jesus cites it, Paul cites it. What are they all saying? They're saying that the biblical foundation of marriage is not the feelings of romantic love, but it's a covenant. 
It's a binding promise to be committed no matter what. And this is why marriage vows are the way they are. I remember vividly seven and a half years ago, Christine and I being married. And uh, I remember standing there on the stage and holding Christina's hand, you know, and reciting those vows, right? I take you to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold, right? For better or worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever noticed this, but there's something almost comical about those vows, right? And I say comical because um, one half of those vows aren't really necessary, right? No one ever has to say, I promise to be with you no matter how good this marriage gets, right? No one ever has to say, no matter how rich we become, I'll be there for you, right? No matter how healthy and how buff and, and in shape you get, right, I'll stick by your side. No one has to say that, right? Because that's obvious. What's the point of the vows? The point of the vows is the other half, that I will love you and I will hold on to you even when it becomes bad, Right? Even when this marriage becomes stinky, or we become poor, or you become sick. Right? It's saying that, you know, five years from now, if your wife gets into an accident, and she's horribly disfigured, and all her bones are crushed, you're saying, I'm not going to abandon you at that moment and find a better wife. I'm going to sit at your hospital bed and hold your hand, and I'm going to be with you. I'm going to stick with you. And I want you to notice that Um, the vows, the marriage vows, are not in the present tense. Have you guys noticed that? It's not an expression of how you feel at that particular moment, right? Of course you love her at that moment. She's never looked more ravishing and beautiful in her life, right? But what is the marriage vows? It's in the future tense, right? It's a promise of fidelity in the future, right? It's a binding self-binding pledge to be committed to the end no matter what. And um, that's very unfashionable today, that, that idea, right? It's very trendy for people to say, why do, I, why do we even need to get married? And, you know, statistics bear this out that the percentage of people who are married are getting less and less and less. And I think maybe the most famous uh, couple who kind of exemplifies this and advocates for this is Susan Sarandon and Tim Robbins, right? And um, um, they've been together, I, well, they used to be together for uh, 20 years, right? And they never got married, and they had all these children together. And the argument that they make is this. They say that marriage actually kills love. That's what they say, that marriage kills love. Because when you're married, you begin to take the other person for granted, right? And so they say, isn't it so much more romantic where every morning you wake up and you choose, you actively choose to be with that other person rather than it being forced on you, rather than you being stuck to that person, right? And I think this is a very, very um, common notion in our culture that somehow um, what marriage does is it kills all of those spontaneous romantic gestures that you have in, 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 in the dating time, right? And so people say, you know, it's, it, don't you want that adventure where every day you don't know, right? You don't know what tomorrow holds. You don't know what next year holds. You don't know if you're going to be together. So it makes every day come alive and every day fresh. And there's that incentive, right, to keep it exciting. And so people say, you know, I don't need a piece of paper um, to show my love. I don't need a piece of paper. And uh, my response and uh, the Bible's response is, 
Yes, you do. You need that piece of paper, and to think otherwise is so naive uh, about love and about marriage. Do you know why you need that piece of paper? Because marriage isn't about how you feel at that moment. It's about the future, right? It's about a pledge of the future because the feelings of love come and go. The feelings of love come and go. Uh, about a year ago, I read a book called uh, Eat, Pray, Love. Um, and it's a huge, huge blockbuster hit written by Elizabeth Gilbert. And it was recently made into a movie. I heard it didn't do too well. Um, but it was recently made into a movie by, uh, with um, Julia Roberts, right? And uh, Eat, Pray, Love is essentially a, a romance story. And, but it's unusual because it begins with a divorce. Elizabeth Gilbert gets a divorce, and nothing traumatic happened. Um, you know, it wasn't because of, you know, adultery or abuse or anything like that. But Elizabeth Gilbert says one day she woke up and she realized, I don't love my husband anymore. And she said every day that went by and that realization sunk in deeper and deeper, she started to feel like buried in her own house. She says that just being with her husband in the same room with someone she did not love, she just felt suffocated. And so she started the process of divorce. And what happened is, um, and she says this in her sequel, actually, she went to this dinner party, and which was being hosted by her publishing company, right? So she writes books, and so they were throwing her a party for one of her books. And uh, this kind of young intern uh, girl comes up to her and says, where is your husband? And Elizabeth Gilbert decided that, you know what, she's not going to lie, she's not going to make up a story. So she just said it flat out, my husband and I are getting a divorce. And uh, this young girl, she kind of, you know, she didn't expect that answer. She kind of stumbled and stuttered, and it was kind of awkward. And so she said very, insensi very insensitively, you should not say this to someone uh, who just says that. She says, well, um, my husband and I will never get a divorce, right? We'll never get a divorce. And that really ticked Elizabeth Gilbert off, right? That made her so upset and so incensed. And she kind of huffed and said in derision, she says, you're so naive to think your marriage will last. And she, and she goes on length, at length in, the, in this book, and she says that marriage is based on romantic love, right? That's her view. She says marriage is based on romantic love, and if that's the case, then marriage is inherently fragile. It's inherently fragile because, she says, you cannot control who you love. Love just happens to you. It's not something you do. It's what happens to you. And therefore, you can't control it. And therefore, the next day, you may fall out of love. Right? And she says this as she's, by the way, engaged to be married to someone. She says, you know what? I'm going to be totally honest. One day, I may fall out of love with Philippe. That's you know, the guy she's being engaged with. And she says, and then I'm just going to leave because I don't believe in a loveless marriage. And I think you know, Elizabeth Gilbert is so deeply flawed about marriage, but I think she's absolutely right. She's absolutely right that if marriage is based on the feelings of romantic love, then there is no such thing as a guarantee. There is no such thing as a guarantee because the feelings come and go, right? And therefore, the only secure foundation has to be a covenant. It has to be a promise to hold fast no matter what. Well, some of you might be saying, what if you do fall out of love, right? What if you genuinely fall out of love with your spouse? 
How horrible, how awful would it be to be stuck in a loveless marriage? And my response is, that assumes that you're helpless before your feelings, right? But what does the Bible say? Look at what the Bible says in Ephesians 5. Notice that Paul says a great deal about love in Ephesians 5. Right? He speaks a great deal about marital love. But here's the critical question. What does Paul mean when he's talking about love? And here's what you need to know. Paul is writing in the Greek language. And the Greeks were pretty sophisticated about love because, you know, in English we have one word, love, to describe a whole range of different, you know, emotions and feelings. Uh, But the Greeks were very sophisticated. They had actually four different words for love, right? They didn't just have one word, but they had four different words. And uh, it's kind of important, so let me go through it with you. Um, There was something called storge, storge love. And that was the natural love that you had for your own kin, your own family member. And then there was philos, and that's friendship love uh, based on your common interests and kind of common goals. And then there was eros, right, which is where we get the word erotic. Eros, which is kind of that passionate, romantic love that, uh, between a man and a woman. And then finally, there was something called agape, right? Some of you have heard of that word, agape love. And agape love did not come naturally, but... It was something that was very intentional, very deliberate. It was very thoughtful. And it was the love that the Bible commands Christians to have for one another. Right? So that we're supposed to agape love with people in the church. And Jesus commands us, right? When he commands us to have love for our enemies, that's the word he uses. This is the kind of love that you could even give to people who want to kill you. You can agape love them. Now here's the question. When Paul is writing about love in his chapter on marriage, which word does he use? You expect him to use eros, right? That kind of passionate, you know, romantic love that overcomes you, right? That just, you know, it's that irresistible attraction. No, he doesn't use eros. He uses agape. We are to agape love our spouse. Now, what does that tell us? This should just... Yes. (laughs) We are to... Okay. That that has blown, okay, Alexa's mind, and that should blow your mind, all right? Okay? We are to agape love our marriage partner. Do you know what that means? Do you know what that means? This is profound and deep theology. Do you know what that means? It means that marriage love is a verb and not a noun. Okay? It's a verb and not a noun. Let me, disc- let me explain what I mean by that. It's not a noun. It's not this sort of frenzied, you know, irrational, floaty state of like, ah, oh, love, right? <laughs> I think the better word for that might be infatuation, right? Or a crush. Marriage is not one long, perpetual crush on another person. Okay? It's not a noun, but it's a, it's a verb. Okay? It's what you do and not what you feel, okay? It's intentional, it's deliberate, it's acting loving, it's doing what is loving. And in that sense, it is the kind of love that you can give to people you naturally hate. Do you see what I'm saying? It's the kind of love that you can give to your enemies. The same love you are supposed to give to your enemies, you can give to your marriage 
partner. Now, remember I said earlier, right, that people say, you know, how awful is it to be stuck in a loveless marriage? But you see, it doesn't have to be loveless, right? Even if you don't feel loving, you can still act loving. You can still do what is loving. And listen to me, when you do what is loving, the feelings will follow. I know that's hard to believe. And, uh, you know, there's so many studies, like, you know, there's all these psychological studies and cognitive science behind it that prove this to be the case. And I would love to just kind of unload some of these studies on you, but I'm not going to do that. Let me just share with you my own personal experience of this, right? When you act loving, the feelings follow. Um, Christina and I, and I know this is going to shock some of you, okay, so I want you to be prepared. On occasion, Christina and I get into these really terrible, intense, angry fights, right? And when we're in the midst of the fight, right, and it's all hot and heated and, you know, angry, I want to be honest with you. I don't feel lovey-dovey warm feelings towards Christina at that moment. All I'm focused on is how hurt I am, how unjust, unjust the whole situation, how I've been wrong, how Christina is wrong, and everything inside of me just wants to like push my case, argue, poke back, slash, you know, prove that I'm right and she's wrong, you know? But listen, there's, there comes a moment in every argument, and I'm sure we've all experienced this, right? Where you sort of like come to your senses and you, and you can sort of like realize what's happening, you know? Like you can take a break from your emotions. And at that moment, I always say to myself, if I do what my feelings tell me to do, then this fight is going to get worse. It's going to get even uglier. But I always try to remind myself at that moment, and I'm not always successful, but I always try to remind myself of the gospel, that God has commanded me to love my wife, to put her interests above my own, right? To care for her. And so I actively choose to love my wife, even though all my feelings and emotions is full of anger and bitterness. And so what I do is I, try, I do the hard mental energy and I, 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 I stop yelling and saying bitter things and I, try, I really try to listen. You know, and I really try to understand it from her perspective, and I really try to see where I'm genuinely wrong. And you know what? I'll, I try to give her this kind gesture. You know, maybe I'll take her hand, and I'll start to stroke it, and just kind of just to show tenderness and that I care for her. And you know what? It's a miracle. <laughs> it's a miracle when you do that. When I do that, Christina begins to reciprocate. You know, and she does maybe a kind gesture to me, or maybe she softens up, and it begins to cascade. And where I once felt so hurt and angry, just cold black darkness in my heart, I just feel so bad, you know, that I've hurt, I'm hurting Christina, that we're getting into this argument, and the feelings, you know, that I remember that I love her. And I think, you know, this whole paradigm of agape love, that we're supposed to agape love our spouse, I think is the most hopeful vision of marriage possible. You know why? Because it tells us that there is no marriage so bad and so broken and so dysfunctional that it is not beyond hope and healing and help. Right? So that if you have the most broken, messed up, poisonous marriage and both sides are genuinely giving each other agape love, even though their feelings maybe are dead inside, you know, maybe they hate their spouse. 
But if they show agape love to each other, over time, it's going to take a lot of work, but that marriage can become good and beautiful again. But if the world is right and marriage is the foundation of marriage is the feelings of romantic love, then you know what? Elizabeth Gilbert is absolutely right. And marriage will only last as long as you're both happy. And I think, you know, in some sense, that might sound romantic. Every day is an adventure. You don't know what's going to happen. Keep it fresh and exciting. But I think that is the most depressed, depressing view of marriage possible. Because you know what that means? It means that once a marriage goes bad, it's hopeless. It, there's no hope. Before we move on, I want to talk about uh, one more thing. Um, and I think it's an important subject on this issue, which is the whole um, thing about moving in together before you get married. Um, this Christian vision of marriage, that marriage is a promise of commitment, shows us that not only is moving in together before you get married um, wrong, but it's a very, very bad idea and very misguided. Okay? And here's why. Why do people live together before, instead of getting married? Why? Isn't it because they're looking for certainty? Right? They want to know, is this person the right person for me? They're asking, how do I know that we're compatible? How do I know that there isn't some sort of skeletons in the closet? How do I know there's not deal breakers? So I want to test drive the marriage relationship before I can really commit. And here's what's wrong with it. Here's why that's such a deeply flawed view of marriage. Because that's saying that marriage is sticking together as long as major problems don't arise. Right? That's what living together is really saying. But don't you see, marriage is committing yourself. It's a covenant to stick together no matter how broken, how flawed the other person is. And some of you might say, well, how do I know that I'm supposed to marry this person? You know, how can I know unless I test drive the relationship? And the answer is, there is no way you can know. There is no way that you're looking for a certainty that doesn't exist until you make that public vow of commitment in front of everyone. And then once you make that public vow, that promise, then you know that's the one you're supposed to marry. Then you know that's the right person. And when you say, and people say this, after they're married, they say, um, oh, I've made a mistake. I married the wrong person. What they're really saying is, oh, I didn't know that I was marrying someone broken and flawed. I really was looking for perfection. And if you're looking for perfection, you're really looking for a savior and you're not looking for a true marriage partner. And I think what's ironic about all of this is that people who live together before marriage, think that they're improving the odds. You know, they think, they think they're improving the odds of a successful marriage, but actually, and this is really ironic, actually, and all the studies show this, I know this might be hard to believe, but tons of studies show this, that people who live together before marriage have a far, far higher rate of divorce than people who get married without living together. And I know that sounds counterintuitive, and I know that sounds really puzzling, but this is the reason why. Because people who live together are asking the wrong question. They're looking for an answer to the wrong question. Their question is, can, um, is this person someone I can commit to? Is this someone that I can really commit to? But that's the wrong question. The right question is, 
Can you commit? Can you commit? And when you live together with someone before marriage, what you're really saying is, I can only commit if you're a good person, if there's no problems with you, if you don't have any psychological problems or any dysfunctions with you. And this is ultimately the tragedy of divorce. Um, I just want to say something really quickly. Um, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I'm not saying that all divorce is wrong and bad. There are very good, reasonable, um, legitimate reasons to get divorced, right? And the Bible talks about them, you know, things like abandonment, things like adultery. So I'm not talking about those divorces, but I'm talking about the majority of divorces today, which is based on unhappiness and incompatibility. And what Jesus is telling us in Matthew 19 is that that kind of divorce is... Of, is um, what am I trying to say? It's a betrayal of a promise, right? It's a betrayal of the promise because you're saying all along, I was only with you as long as you made me happy. All along, I was only with you as long as you kept your job, you stayed beautiful, as long as you met my needs, right? But if that's the case, if that's the case, if, if people have that mentality, then why don't we just change the marriage vows, you know? Why don't we just be honest from the very beginning and people say, I take you to be my wedded wife as long as we're rich, as long as you stay healthy and beautiful, as long as we don't get into too many fights or you make me unhappy, but when you do, I'm going to leave you. You know, I've been to a lot of weddings. I have never, ever heard anyone say those vows. Do you know why? Because we know deep down in our hearts, we know that that's not what marriage is about. We know that marriage, the essence of marriage, is a commitment, is a promise to stick together no matter what. That marriage is not about how you feel right now, but it's a pledge for the future. 10, 15, 20 years from now, how will you be towards your spouse? You will give your spouse agape love. It's a promise. Here and now, I promise to love you in 20 years. Okay. Well, ultimately, the Bible doesn't give us arguments, but it gives us a story. And so I want to close with a story. And I think, um, ultimately, what we, don't, what we need is not an argument. Because an argument might kind of convince you intellectually, but it doesn't change your heart. Okay? And so only a story will change your heart. So let me end with a story. And this is the story of uh, Hosea, the prophet Hosea in the Old Testament. And Hosea was married to a woman named Gomer. And the thing you need to know in order to understand this story is that Hosea deeply deeply loved Gomer. But one day, one terrible day, he discovered that Gomer was cheating on him. And as you can imagine, um, he went through enormous pain and turmoil. And you can imagine him in, in, in absolute anguish crying out to God, God, why would you allow me to marry Gomer if you knew this was going to happen? And many, many years later, as he was sort of writing his memoir, so to speak, the book of Hosea, Hosea realized. He says, now I understand that God, in my broken heart, you allowed me to understand what Israel was doing to you. Because you see, Hosea understood that Israel, the people of Israel, was to be married to God, that they were to be true and faithful to God, no matter what, not to love any other foreign gods, not to set up idols in their heart, but Israel was unfaithful. And so Hosea understood that 
God had allowed him to have a marriage just like his own with Israel so that his prophet might catch a glimpse of God's heart. And then one day, Gomer became pregnant. And maybe at that moment, Hosea had this flicker of hope that now at last Gomer will love me. Now at last she'll settle down and she'll commit to our family because now we're going to have a little boy. But Gomer did not change. And the thing you need to know is that the first child, the first son, was Hosea's son, right? It was Hosea's baby. But then Gomer, got, uh, Gomer became pregnant again and then a third time. And as he watched his two little children, his second and third child, grow up, this terrible sinking realization came to him that they looked nothing like him. There was no resemblance because they were the children of another man. And actually, God commands Hosea to name his third, third child, a boy, Lo-Ami, which means not my people, not my kin. And can you imagine every night as Hosea put his little boy down and he would say, good night, not my kin. Good night, not my own. And how all of his neighbors must have whispered behind his back, what kind of prophet is this? Even his own wife cannot be faithful to him. And then one day, Gomer left Hosea. And she abandoned her three children. And she went to go live with her lover. But her lover became cruel to her. And he sold her into slavery. Now, the thing you need to know is in the ancient world, uh, slave auctions, what they would do is they would strip a woman naked so that she was forced to stand before the gaze of the crowd. Right? It was a deeply humiliating and shameful thing. And so I kind of want you to imagine this scene where all the crowd, they're looking at Gomer, and they know her story. They know who she is. And maybe some of them felt pity, but a great many probably said, she's getting what she deserves. And they would have, of course, noticed that in the crowd, standing there was Hosea, her husband. And maybe they said, "He's, he's there to see justice done. He's there to feel vindicated. And then the bidding began. And the auctioneer said, who will have this woman? And one man cried out, I will pay 10 silver pieces. And then another man said, 12 silver pieces. And then another man said, 14 silver pieces. And then to everyone's absolute shock and astonishment, Hosea said, I will pay 15 silver pieces. And you can read about it in Hosea chapter 3, verse 2. He says, I will pay... 15 silver pieces, and as the crowd watched in stunned silence, Hosea went up and paid the money, and he covered his wife's nakedness with his cloak, and he took her home. And I think the person who was in the most shock of all would have been Gomer. And maybe as she shed hot tears of shame and repentance, she would have realized, my husband, though I have wronged him again and again and again, He still loves me, and he forgives me, and he's taking me home. Because you see, God had commanded Hosea in chapter 3, verse 1, and let me read you the verse. He says, it says, And the Lord said to me, Hosea, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they have turned to other gods. You see, we will never understand marriage and we will never understand the gospel until we understand 
that in this story, we are Gomer. We were supposed to be wedded to God and to be faithful and true to Him, but we have whored after other gods. We have set up other idols in our hearts. We have made other things other than God more important and central in our lives. Our career, our financial security, our relationships, you know, whatever it is, we have said, this is what, this is my lover. He will keep me warm. He will take care of me. But in the end, we have become enslaved. And God in Christ pursues us and he comes after us and he redeems us. He buys us back, not with 15 silver pieces, but with the blood shed on the cross. And that is the gospel. The gospel is that we are an unfaithful wife. And God has been in the worst marriage in the history of the world. And though we have wronged him again and again and again, Yet God holds fast to his covenant with us and he pursues us and he endures the agony and the cost of what our sins did and he buys us back and he loves us. And therefore, when we agape love our spouse, right? And that's what Paul means in verse 25 in in Ephesians 5. He says, husbands, love your wives. What does it mean to love, right? And this goes, by the way, both ways. What does it mean to love? He says, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That is what gospel reenactment means. That's what it means in your marriage to live out the truth of the gospel with your spouse, to play out the drama in your, in your marriage. And when you do that, right, you show that marriage is a covenant. It's a promise of fidelity. To have and to hold, for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, so long as we both shall live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray and we confess to you that we are Gomer. And we have been unfaithful to you. And we have not kept our pledge. But Lord, you love us. In the gospel, you pursued us and you paid the ultimate price on the cross in Christ. And we pray that that would change our hearts and allow us to love even though our feelings may die, even though we may not feel romantic. We pray that we can extend that grace to our spouse. And I pray that uh, for the singles here who uh, expect to get married or want to get married, I pray that they would realize that they need to make that promise and make that pledge and show gospel love to their future spouse. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.